I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. So where to start? Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. Patricia Musum. She's a Western-trained medical doctor and pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health, and contemporary spirituality. She's the founder of Transformational Medicine, a whole-person approach to health and well-being, and she's the author of Beyond Medicine, a physician's revolutionary prescription for achieving absolute health and finding inner peace. Trish, it's really wonderful to have you back. Thank you, Tonio. Thanks for having me back. It's really nice to be back and have another chat with you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I enjoyed our last conversation so much. So I thought we could begin by you telling us about some unusual experiences that you had in your earlier life and how that connected you and developed your fascination with the unseen world and the nature of reality 
that exists beyond our physical senses and thinking brain? Sure. Yes, I can do that. I will share two experiences that I actually write about in the introduction of the book, uh, not in chronological order that they occurred for me, but I'll share the one that was probably the most profound experience in terms of radically changing my experience of being human, radically changing what I understood life and reality to be, radically changing what I understood about the nature of time and space and consciousness and what science teaches us about the world around us, at least what classical science teaches us about the world that we inhabit. And that experience happened when I was in college in my early 20s. I started having psychic experiences. These were experiences that I had little glimpses of when I was a child, but never really long enough to kind of explore more deeply. During this period of time in college, I started having about maybe six weeks to two months, I don't remember exactly, period of quite intense sensitivities and psychic abilities. I was able to see the future happening visually. I was able to know people's thoughts. I could literally read people's minds. I was able to, without intention actually, I was able to change material, change matter. I remember a key melting in my palm, a car key melting in my palm. I also had what seemed like a very deep and profound connection to dogs. <laughs> uh, I've always felt a kinship with our canine companions, but this was much, much stronger as if I could communicate with these animals. I um, felt also a very deep and abiding feeling of peace throughout all of it, just exquisite peace, exquisite equanimity, exquisite stillness and presence, being very much present in the moment with every experience I was having. And it was a kind of peace I'd never experienced before. It was a kind of peace that also led me to know that everything that was going on in the world, no matter whether it was something internally in my life or external to me, was okay. No matter what was going on, everything would be okay. So I say that this experience lasted about six or eight weeks, if I remember at all the duration, was because it ended really abruptly. It ended with my literal incarceration against my will in the psychiatric ward of a hospital where I was deemed crazy, destined to be medicated for life, placed on four medications, and which effectively tampered down and then finally suppressed those experiences that I was having. They also quite numbed my mind and numbed and actually confused my senses. I'll have to say, and this is a bit of an aside because I'm not going to go into this now, but that experience of being um, <laughs> being brought up to the fourth floor of that hospital psychiatric ward 
was another gift, an incredible blessing in disguise. It, it taught me tremendous amount about how Western medicine understands consciousness and the mind and, and what, what we lack in our understanding of consciousness and the mind. But suffice to say, I didn't realize that at the time, that that return to myself, which actually happened after this hospitalization, happened because I had an amazing and remarkable woman in my mother who was incredibly ahead of her time, progressive thinker, independent thinker, very bright person who definitely thought outside the box and in fact decided to see that there wasn't a box to think outside of. She actually slowly weaned me off of all of these medications. It was over a year and a half later. I was on those medications for quite some time. And slowly, little by little, I returned to my body, to my mind, to the person that I knew in terms of how I experienced the world within me and the world around me, how my senses experienced the world around me and the world within me. And it was a remarkable journey that return to myself. I still have those types of experiences, but they're tempered now. They're much more grounded. At the time, I didn't fully understand what was going on. Had I fully understood, I probably wouldn't have had that illuminating experience on the fourth floor of the hospital in a locked psychiatric ward. But I will say that that experience, those openings, and then the closings that occurred when I was shut down, were incredibly life-changing beyond words <laughs> and led me to the knowing, not the believing, but the knowing that there is an ineffable unseen reality that is beyond our thinking brains, beyond the experience of our five senses, beyond how we experience and understand in our classical views of science, namely classical physics, space and time. And I went on throughout my later years after that experience in my research and my work and my further personal journeys to explore these notions of consciousness, these notions of reality. I discuss this at length in the book. It's actually my favorite chapter. It may not be everybody's favorite chapter, but it was my favorite chapter. It was probably the hardest chapter to write as well. But I've come to appreciate the wide body of robust science that supports these notions of consciousness and this greater reality, as well as the ancient wisdom that has always understood nature and the nature of reality and nature of being human to be so. So that was one very, very, very profound experience that forever changed me, as I said. Another experience, and, and I'll wrap it up <laughs> in a little less time, happened earlier on in my life, or at least the beginning of that experience happened earlier on in my life. When I was in my early teens, my father, who was an otherwise very, very healthy man, had a catastrophic stroke when he was fairly young, when he was 49 years old, and it left him what we call in the Western uh, medical semantic hemiplegic and partially aphasic, which meant he had a hard time saying the words he wanted to speak, and he was paralyzed partially on one side on his upper and lower limbs. And my dad, by his nature, was a survivor and a thriver, and he lived many, many more years beyond being in the state the stroke had left him. He pursued all sorts of 
other therapies. He was a physician. Um, he was very open to other therapies at the time, which was quite progressive of him because way back when there was not an openness in the mainstream medical community towards other approaches. But he used acupuncture and a number of other therapies, and he made tremendous progress in healing from those symptoms, and he was tremendously recovered. But sadly enough, not so much that he could continue working again, and his work was very much his passion in his life. So he made arithmetic progress. He was able to improve his speech and improve his mobility in terms of the paralysis. Years later, nearly 19 years later, when I was in my fourth year of medical school, I had been studying acupuncture and Chinese medicine and working with and taking the courses of a quite remarkable and eccentric physician scientist who had a unique approach to health and healing that combined the Chinese medical concept of qi, energy or qi, with uh, kind of conventional thinking that was burgeoning at the time that infections were implicated in all diseases, microcirculatory disturbances as well. To make a long story short, my father saw this person for treatments and I witnessed, I bore witness to an absolutely remarkable healing, a healing that returned his speech to his normal pre-stroke speech. His post-stroke speech was very different from his pre-stroke speech. He was German by birth. He had the stroke, the words came back in German syntax, which is typically passive voice and sometimes German phrases. But when he went through this treatment with this quite remarkable practitioner, his speech returned to normal. It was beyond belief. It definitely challenged what we understand in Western medicine about reality and healing and matter at that time when my dad first had the stroke, it was believed that neurons don't regenerate. Well, clearly, nowadays, we've got abundant proof of the neuroplasticity of the brain. But so anyhow, this was a second experience that challenged my worldview and everything that I had believed or been known to understand about Western medicine and its constructs and its beliefs about reality and how the body gets well or how the body can get well. So I came to believe that healing beyond the bounds of Western medicine was absolutely necessary, not only possible, but it was necessary for us to heal completely. And that healing transcended those constructs of matter and energy in Western medicine. So that in a longer, <laughs> a longer explanation that I'd planned was another profound experience that forever changed my understanding of health and healing and was fuel for my interest in pursuing medicine as a calling. These experiences were prior to my medical education, although his healing occurred during my medical education, but my bearing witness to his making improvements far greater than anybody had ever said would be possible, still fuel that interest in pursuing the notion that healing beyond the bounds of what we're typically taught in our Western culture is possible. Mm -hmm. I really want to go into the implications of both of those experiences, particularly in your further understanding, underpinning them. But could we begin by 
talking about your understanding of your father's healing? Yeah, well, that's a little harder for me, and I don't feel I really have wrapped my head around that experience. My dad, and if people do read the book, they'll they'll see that my dad didn't pursue, he didn't continue with the treatments. And so he didn't maintain that curative effect on his speech. And in terms of healing, you know, I... Um, well, what was the protocol that he chose not to continue then? The protocol that he chose not to continue involved the use of chi energy applied through a piece of matter on his skull and the use of certain substances, biological substances that were shown through kinesiologic testing to neutralize what kinesiologic testing had shown to be infectious pathogens that were causative for the neurologic disorders. And this man's theory, this is a very, it's, it's a material slash energetic theory is that, you know, on a very physical level, we can talk about healing emotionally and spiritual healing. And I've borne witness to you know, apparently miraculous healings that don't involve any substances or any chi applied to matter. But in his cosmology, in this doctor's cosmology, all diseases had a microcirculatory disturbance as a component and infectious etiology as a causative factor. And the way these diseases were he treated were to use chi energy stored in a piece of matter such as paper or a device that would resolve the microcirculatory disturbance and at the same time have that person taking these substances that had been tested that would neutralize the infections. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> I could understand that based upon my studies and, and my exposure to things. Um, obviously, listeners will have varied degrees of understanding or not understanding that. Sure. I think maybe we could just focus the rest of this conversation on the implications of your understanding of your earlier experience and how that connects with our newfound scientific understanding of reality beyond our physical senses. And basically, what is your understanding at this point of that experience you had before getting committed to the uh, psychiatric ward? That experience for me distilled, uh, I don't know if distilled is the best word, but that experience, as I mentioned, forever shaped my understanding of reality. So I came to understand, and this is something that I live and breathe, you know, moment to moment, day to day, that there is a greater reality beyond the five senses in my thinking brain. And that greater reality is one in which consciousness, in fact, consciousness is just a, the phenomenon of consciousness is, is a reflection of this greater reality. And that I don't begin and end at birth. And those who have passed on are still in some sort of form. 
but not material form, if you will. And what this has offered me, and I'm not sure where you want me to go with the science of it all. I would like you to integrate it in the way that's most meaningful for you. You talked about the chapter, the science about it as being your favorite chapter. And this is a very favorite subject of mine as well. So mm -hmm. I would really love for you to go into it as deeply as you can. Okay. Okay. I come away from that experience and those, those perceptual experiences with an understanding of life, as I said, that is forever change. And it's understanding of life that has completely made me fearless about the nature of being human and the nature of our being mortal. In other words, our dying. And I came to be fearless about illness and the process of dying. And knowing that there's something beyond what I experienced with my five senses and what my thinking brain experiences gave me tremendous amount of comfort and faith in this greater reality. And also that this greater reality is at play in our lives always. For anybody who's had a dream come true or experienced deja vu, I ask, and I mention this in the book, hold on to these rememberings because they're examples of this greater reality. And the implications for, and I'm hoping this is helpful to listeners because this is what's helpful to me and what I write about in the books. I'm hoping it's helpful to readers. The implications are if this greater reality were, were just so, if it really did exist, and there's abundant science, as I mentioned, that does support this notion that there is a greater reality. There's fabulous science by very well-credentialed researchers, physicians and basic scientists and other people with graduate degrees. Not that that gives us credibility as a human being, but it helps to support their credibility in their scientific endeavors. There's tremendous science supporting all this. And I say, well, gee, just what if? Just what if? How might that change our experience of living? How might we live differently if we could wrap our heads and our beings around these notions of consciousness and this greater reality? How might we experience illness differently? How might we experience crises in our life differently? Perhaps we wouldn't experience them as crises. How might we experience dying process? How might we experience death differently? If we knew that consciousness in some form persists the end of our physical body and precedes the beginning of our physical body, e.g. when we're born, how might it change our worldview? You know, there, there are many, many faith traditions and many, many spiritual traditions throughout the world rooted in these notions of consciousness. That's, they're not notions of consciousness that are germane or principal roots of Western culture. They're not notions of consciousness that are at the root of Western medicine, at least not modern day medicine. They are rooted in the ancients, the ancient forefathers, and they were mostly forefathers of Western medicine. So what to me is most significant, and this is why I, I love this stuff, because it's the stuff that dreams are made on, but there's stuff that the miracles of dreams are not apparent miracles or dreams. They actually are reality. And they, they help me find my way and navigate being in a body. They give me what I, as I said, tremendous faith 
and comfort. And I'm hoping that for readers, if they can explore these notions of consciousness, and I offer tools in that chapter to play around with them as well. And I offer a lot of research to say, please suspend your disbelief, listen and read this research. How might it change your experience of being human? How might it change your experience of living in a body, of experiencing dis-ease in your psyche? How might it change the experience of illness, dying and death, as I said? And I offer that if we can truly wrap our minds and our beings around these notions, it can really transform how we experience being human and bring us to a place of peace and ease and dissolve the suffering and dissolve the struggles that we often experience living in a world that we tend to perceive as truly only material. I don't mean material financially, I mean just truly only material, where time is linear, meaning we're on the phone this morning at 12, a little bit after 12 noon, and in our worldview that comes before 1 p.m., and all this sort of notions of space being three-dimensional. Well, there's science, including modern physics, that supports otherwise. So just what if, if all this stuff were real, how might you live differently? And I offer that people might live with so much more ease and they might be able to return to health. They might be able to heal more easily because they would be fearless in the face of illness, dying, and death. And for me, Knowing all this has taken that fear away. And if we're fearless, we can return to health more readily because fear is a risk factor for dis-ease, disease, and dying and death. And if we are on our way to leave our bodies, and I talk about this too as well, that healing may be a return to our physical body, but may also be a dying. It may be passing, leaving our physical bodies. And if it is our time to leave, Perhaps we may leave with more ease and more peace rather than a fight. As we so often hear about, well, we have to fight the disease. We have to fight the cancer. It's a bad thing. Healing from cancer can happen. Healing from disease can happen. Leaving our bodies is a healing as well. And I'm going off on a big tangent now, kind of returning to another theme of the book, which is this notion that I introduce and define as absolute health. And absolute health is simply inner peace. So I offer many paths to this experience of inner peace. One of them, a lot of the information I offer in that chapter and that part of the book. So I think I'm going to pause now for a breath and and defer to you. I don't know if I I got us around to where we wanted to go. Yeah, this is great. Um, So what I'd like to get into now is what is the essence of this inner peace. And I'll just say that I've had numerous experiences in my life of being drawn deep down inside myself where I felt quite viscerally that I was totally safe and that nothing could harm me, not even death or disease or that nothing in the outer world could have any meaningful effect upon my true essential being that I was experiencing in those moments. And what I'm asking about what this inner peace really is, is I get this sense from what you're you're saying that 
that this is really about connecting and aligning ourselves with that part of ourself that is inseparable from that state of inner peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love how you just described these knowings or these experiences of inner peace that you've had. That was really prosaic and, and eloquent. Thank you. I think of it and I write about it as simply our inner or our essential nature. That inner peace is our essential nature. It was the way we were born to be. I describe it as just simply a state where we're not attached to what's happened in the past. We're not ruminating or worrying about the future but we're in the present moment and that peace of mind will bring us or will allow us to experience what you've just described your personal experience freedom from fear freedom from from whatever may keep us stuck or may worry us and it's not necessarily a state that we will have continuously, but it's a state that we can achieve in every moment, in every breath. And that's another big theme of the book is that your way home to that place of absolute health or abs- or inner peace is available to you in this very moment. And it's a place where mind, where thinking, where analysis, where attachment to emotions that may feel difficult dissolves and all is well Mm -hmm. it's also the state we need to be in physiologically for healing to happen the body needs to be in a state of rest for healing to happen the mind needs to be in a state of peace for the body to be in a state of rest for healing to happen. So this place of inner peace is where we need to be for whatever's going on, whether we want to move to a more optimal state of health. And I say physical health, but in effect, there's no distinction between mind and body. It's just an ineffably linked continuum. But that state of peace is where we need to be for clarity and solutions to arise. And it comes from just simply being with what is, including being with what what you just mentioned as difficult emotions. It's by being present with what is that what is can shift. I'm sure many people have heard of this popular phrase, what we resist persists. So what we resist persists, and often we resist feeling difficult feelings. In fact, we're hardwired neurologically from our times of cavemen and cavewomen to resist difficult feelings because they will interfere with us protecting our survival. But it's by being present with what is, no matter how difficult that emotion may be, that we shift it and we move to that place of equanimity. Resisting creates stress physiologically in the body. Resisting creates a state of dis-ease and facilitates disease. So that place of inner peace is an omnipotent place to be. And again, we may need to cultivate that frequently because the nature of the mind, for many of us, myself included, is to be like a monkey, sometimes jumping from limb to limb and moving and being fueled by 
affective or emotional states rather than cultivating stillness and bearing witness to them. So again, that place of inner peace we achieve by stopping to pause and be present with what is. And then we're literally bearing witness to rather than being fueled or sometimes paralyzed by feelings. And then from that place, we enter that state of equanimity and we dissolve the power of the mind's analysis or the emotion's fuel. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And it's quite amazing what's possible when we are in that state. I mean, growing up, you know, from some of the experiences I've had during my childhood that I couldn't explain or understand, nor did I ever speak to anybody about back then, I had this profound sense that quite literally anything is possible beyond any of the limitations that we mm. generally assume to be true in this physical world. And the implications of that are extremely profound and it relates directly back to your experience when you were in college. And also I've done particular spiritual work and trainings where we cultivated certain you would call supernatural abilities. So I know firsthand that there are things are possible that are beyond what we consider to be possible. And I am utterly fascinated by all of this as well. Um, I also had an experience where I related an experience firsthand that I had regularly through my childhood. When I was 18, I had this experience happen again. And I happened to be lying in bed with my girlfriend at the time when it started. And I narrated it to her while it was happening. And after that, it never happened again. But I think it was fading out anyway, because originally it was happening quite often. And then gradually, as I got older, it happened less and less frequently. And it was just the experience of feeling my body. And it felt like my physical body, but it was this visceral sense of my body expanding infinitely to the size of the universe and continuing and then shrinking back down and then shrinking down to an infinitesimally tiny, tiny size and having this visceral experience of being like a tiny, tiny speck way out in outer space in between the stars. And there was this, this experience of of like a hand out there that was like a benevolent presence so that I felt completely safe and taken care of no matter how infinitesimally tiny I was. And then I, I returned back to my normal size. Mm. And I also try to live my life from this visceral sense and understand that anything is possible. And of course, we get distracted continually, as you were talking about how our monkey mind just goes off on every little tangent at times, and we get distracted from this, but we can return to it. And I try to live my life from then. I try to return back to it, you know, from whatever things arise, like sometimes health conditions arise, pain, suffering, emotional distress, all kinds of things 
arise in our lives that distract us and challenge us. But um, one of the things that I loved so much about your book is how you keep returning back to this stopping, pausing, and just being, using breath to return to the present moment and the depth and profundity of that experience of returning to the present moment in which quite literally anything is possible and how everything can dissolve into that. Yes, that was so beautiful what you just shared. Thank you, Tonio. That was really beautiful. I'm sorry yes. I took so much time because I really want to hear more from you. <laughs> oh, I, I, I very much was hanging on to every word there. It was so beautifully stated, and I, I resonate with all of it. Yes, anything and everything is possible. Anything and everything is possible. But as you also shared, you know, we may not always be in that place of knowing and remembering that. We may not always be in that place of knowing and remembering that. And I, I myself am not always in that place of knowing and remembering all that my experiences have taught me. And I offer throughout the book tools to return to that place of being. And as you said, it's simply by stopping and pausing and being where we can return to what I call a type of home. We can return home to that place of absolute health where everything dissolves. Yes, we can experience health issues. We can experience struggles, suffering, emotional distress. We can experience all sorts of stuff. And if we're in the throes of it and we're not managing, and it doesn't mean we're not okay and we're not getting it, but my key theme and key take-home message is that wherever you are, no matter what's going on, there's a path to ease from it. And it is here now. And I include myself in that. I'm not always there. I'm not always walking on this um, carpet of air and light. And I spent quite a few months and sometimes years of having lost that sense of knowing, or let's say being very disconnected from that sense of knowing and remembering that my experiences taught me. So I offer tools that people can use to find their way easily to that place where all difficulties dissolve, where all struggles ease. And it's by stopping doing and by simply being that we experience that. And I'm constitutionally, by my nature, an inveterate doer. So, you know, this for me is a very powerful tool to use. And, and I structure in my day lots of experiences for being rather than doing to be reminded of that. Mm -hmm. Now, I can imagine that there are people listening who are saying it can't be that simple. Or how could it be that simple? And also because many people have practiced meditation, have been exposed to the basic principle of being present, be here now, and, and just be present with whatever is arising. And yet, for many people, it doesn't bring them to that place of profound peace that we've been talking about necessarily. And for those people, well, one thing I, I also want to add is the exercises in the book are more, much more than just stopping and pausing. 
and being present, you take us through many different processes. They're, they're all very simply done, but they take us through a very wide range of experiences and concerns and issues and bring us back to that same place over and over again. And that, I think, is one of the most profoundly unique things about this book that you offer is that it really works. I mean, it worked for me over and over again. And it took me several weeks to get through this book because I <laughs> I took every opportunity to really dive into these exercises. And I spent probably more time in the exercises than I did in the actual reading. Mm. And I just wonder if you could maybe walk us through one of those exercises in a way that gives listeners a visceral sense of, of this experience? Sure, sure. Yeah, and I'd like to just comment on what you just shared before I do that. You mentioned that many listeners may have uh, regular practices of meditation and perhaps regular spiritual inclinations, but it still feels hard to cultivate or even find that place of equanimity. And I will say that sometimes, and I've experienced this myself, we can find in those practices a way to avoid being present. And sometimes it's referred to a spiritual bypass. I think I refer to it, if I remember correctly, I think I refer to it as emotional bypass. But we can be deeply engaged in some of these practices that literally change the neural networks and, you know, change our thinking and change our affect. But if we're not allowing what's underneath, if we're having dis-ease somewhere in our psyche and we're not allowing that to be, if we're not allowing that to be and then shift because it's by being that we shift, then it's likely that these practices will just give us momentary distraction from what's feeling challenging. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So what I'll offer you and listeners is a little guided exercise in what I call one of the five absolute health tools. These are tools that help us cultivate this being here now experience, the being present with what is. And again, it's by being present with what is that we shift what is and we enter this place of peace, of quiet, both bodily, mentally, and spiritually, if you will, for those who like to think of our experiences of bodily, mental, and spiritual experience. So... Mind-body sensing is one of the tools I talk about in the book, and I offer exercises throughout the book. And it is a powerful tool to cultivate very physical, somatic body experience of where we're holding thoughts and feelings in the body. And a little background, we literally hold thoughts and feelings in the physical body. They're literally things, if you will. And the held emotions, held thoughts, feelings can be foci for disease and disease. So by finding where we're holding them in the body, we can actually ease them and release their being held in the body. 
There's interestingly, and actually not surprisingly, a body of research that supports just this very notion that body awareness toggles on what's called the parasympathetic nervous system. That's a system that we need to be turned on for rest, repair, healing, and as well as digestion and sleep, which are nutritive processes that help us heal and rejuvenate. So let me leave it at that and ask everyone to get as comfortable as you comfortably can. It's important that you can breathe fully. So if you're wearing any clothing around your waist that's impeding your belly from getting large on the inhale, loosen a belt or a snap or a zipper. I always say on these things that we're G-rated, but you got to be able to let your belly grow. So just undo anything around your waist there if it's impinging on your body and your belly, expanding on the breathing in. And you can lie down if you're not lying down. Again, be as comfortable as you can. And bring to mind something that's going on in your life that's a cause of stress. There may be more than one issue that's going on, but whatever comes to mind first, I want you to keep that, hold that issue in your mind. And bring to mind everything that comes to mind around that issue all the thoughts and feelings that arise. And now I'd like you to give the biggest feeling that's coming up a name. Just name it. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's sadness, maybe it's rage, maybe it's frustration, maybe something else. Just give it a name. And now what I'd like you to do is imagine dropping down into your body to find where you feel that feeling. Where's that feeling in your body? And what I mean by that is you may have a sensation somewhere, a physical sensation somewhere in your body. Part of your body's talking to you with a sense response. You may feel a pain or a discomfort or an awkwardness. You may not feel a particular sensation. Your attention may just go to a particular part of your body. Settle into that place. Breathe into that place in your body. What's very normal, what's very natural when we're doing this exercise is for new thoughts to arise. Just the monkey mind is doing its thing. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just its nature. So as new thoughts arise and if new emotions arise, repeat the process. Name the feeling. Drop into your body. Find the feeling in the body. And just Breathe into that place. 
Breathe with gentle belly breaths, letting the belly rise on the inhale and gently return on the exhale. Letting the body support the breath slowly and gently, rising on the inhale, returning on the exhale. And again, feelings come and go, new feelings, new thoughts arise. Some enter, others leave. Whatever becomes predominant, return to naming that feeling. Maybe it's even a feeling like, gee, I wish this exercise were over. I'm feeling impatient. I want to get on with what's happening next after the show. <laughs> Whatever the feeling is, it's about cultivating our awareness of the feeling, being present with it, naming it, and finding it in the body. And I'm going to bring us to a close now and just ask everybody to return to gentle belly breathing. Gentle belly breathing. When you're ready, bring your palms to cover your eyes, keeping your eyes closed. It's best done without our glasses if we're wearing glasses. Breathing into the palms. When you're ready, open your eyes into the palm, still palming your eyes. A couple more gentle inhalations, exhalations. When you're ready, release your hands down to wherever they're most comfortable. Trish, thank you so much for that. As you're we were, very welcome. I absolutely love this book. I was thinking just a few moments ago that I would love to buy a box of these books and just give them out to to everybody I, I care about because I think this book is so powerful and so incredibly useful, more so these days than ever before. I think it's just a, a very, very profound and powerful tool for dealing with with life the way the way it is. Tonio, thank you. I'm, I'm truly honored by those comments. I, I truly am and humbled because I know we don't know each other so well, but I know of you and, and what you do in the world. And I know you're a seeker and a wise and enlightened soul. To have that feedback from you is truly an honor. Thank you. And I hope that we can find another time to talk more because there's there's so much more I would love to talk with you about. And also, this is pretty much out of the realm of possibility, but I couldn't think of another person that I would prefer to have as my doctor than to have you as someone that I could talk about, you know, health issues with. And like you, I had a negative experience with a medical doctor over 40 years ago and didn't see a doctor after that until just several months ago when I had a kidney stone and went to the emergency room. Oh my. Well, I'm honored by that comment too. And just FYI, or for anybody who's listening, I still do doctoring, but I don't do it as a primary care doctor. I, I offer health consultations and I do it remotely. I do it from my home office, screen to screen or phone to phone. I do it with people all over the world. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, and that includes you, I'm, I'm happy to be of service. 
how could they reach you? Uh, probably the best way is via my website, which is transformationalmedicine.org. And there's a contact form on there. If people like to use cell, I give everybody my cell phone. I don't have a problem with that. They can call me. The number is 917-566-0878. And texting is fine, too, if that's something that people want to do. And again, the website has a contact form. I think it's too much information to give my email, but I'm available by email as well. And I'll get information. Anybody reaches out to me from the website contact form by email too. That's very generous of you. And I just want to tell people, get this book. It's titled Beyond Medicine, A Physician's Revolutionary Prescription for Achieving Absolute Health and Finding Inner Peace. I couldn't recommend this book or any book more highly than this. Tonio, thank you. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure and again, an honor. And uh, I would love to be on anytime again, <laughs> if it can be meaningful to your listeners. It was certainly meaningful to me to have our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to it because we have so much in common. So yes, I mm -hmm. look forward to continuing the conversation. Great. And until then, be well. Thank you, you too. And the same to everybody listening. Thank you. And bye-bye. Bye. I've been speaking with Patricia Musum. She's a Western-trained medical doctor and pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health, and contemporary spirituality. She's the founder of Transformational Medicine, a whole person approach to health and well-being. And she's the author of this wonderful book that we've been talking about, Beyond Medicine, A Physician's Revolutionary Prescription for Achieving Absolute Health and Finding Inner Peace. Next, we're going to hear from Ram Das here on the Magical Mystery Tour. Most of our images of love in our society have to do with romantic love. They are poetic love. They are interpersonal love. I love you, you love me, we love each other. We all give lip service to, but hardly ever really acknowledge that there is another kind of love that is not interpersonal. We call it conscious love or God's love. And the image I have is that when you grow up in a society of conditional love, which most of us have grown up in because of the way in which we are socialized, we end up very needful for love, and that's why a lot of the literature is about love and affection. It's as if there's something in us that's very hungry. We're on a deprivation diet. And so when we meet somebody who has the key to unlock something in us, we experience that we are in love, and we say, I am in love with you. Another way of saying it in a kind of an instinct literature is, you are the key stimulus that is releasing the mechanism in me 
that allows me to be in love. You're my connection. And as my connection, I want to possess you because I'm hungry to be in this state in my being. I have come into the place of love in my being. And everything is beautiful suddenly. But it only happens when you're around. So where will you be Thursday? And where will you be Friday? And where will you be for the rest of my life? And the tendency is to want to possess the beloved, which, as you and I both know, is one of the quickest ways to destroy it. And that love has in it fear because somebody's going to die or go away or find another lover or something. That's interpersonal romantic love. And that's why there's so much poetry about it, because it has the fear and the joy and the, all of the stuff in it. But now, take that image that the key stimulus is something that opens you to the place in yourself where you are love. And through the spiritual practices and through understanding the metaphysics and through opening yourself, you find yourself starting, whether you call it awareness, where you draw your awareness back from thought, or however you get in there through meditation, through devotion, through study, whatever your practices are, you find yourself starting to rest in the place of presence in your being, which has the quality of that openness, that boundarylessness, that intuitive heart space where you experience that you are in love. But now you are no longer dependent on an external thing to awaken you to it. You're beginning to rest in it. You are beginning to be love. Now, the social problems that raises are very interesting because what happens is now everyone you look at, you are in love with. And you don't quite know what to do because if you've been working on an old deprivation model, you want to collect them all. <laughs> so you get one and you say, let's nest. And you go back and you get twigs and drapes and, you know, make a nest. And then after some time, you say, I'm going to the supermarket to get some tofu and beer. <laughs> and at the checkout counter, you look at the person at the checkout counter and it happens again. Because now the eyes, you see, are the windows to the soul, and the soul rests in love. The soul is a being within the place of love. So you look, and there's your beloved. Now what are you going to do? You've got one at home. So you say, have you considered a menage a trois? <laughs> but what are you going to do then? Are you going to not walk down the street and look at anybody? Because it's going to keep happening. And you realize that you're going to have to give up your deprivation model because there's an abundance of love. You're going to have to stop collecting it so that you pass your beloved on the street and you don't even wink. So you go through stages of at first you can't believe it. See? So you go down the street and you meet one and you say, let's have coffee together or give me my, your telephone number you know, in case I run out of the others later. I want to know that this one is because it's so beautiful. And then after a while you just keep letting go and letting go and letting go until you realize that you're just living in this presence of love. Because the thing that has closed you down is the fear of the other person's pain and suffering. And once you have that spiritual perspective that allows you to keep your heart open in the hell and the pain and the grief and the stuff, then you can start to be in love with another human being without feeling the possessive quality about it. And so with Mary, I'm sitting with Mary and I am falling into love with her. And that is both levels. The personal level, I'm attached to her, I don't want her to die. I've gotten to love her so much, I don't want her to die. And the other part, she and I are just floating in the ocean of love. And I realize what she is experiencing is such an intimate human contact as I am. We are both dying together. And we go right up to the moment of death. And at that point, what happened to me was I then 
found myself separating myself from her because I wasn't yet capable of staying in love through death. And that's my work on myself. I could stay in love through dying, but not through death yet. And yet, love transcends death. But to be that wisdom is different than knowing that wisdom. And I am dying into that wisdom. This is too weird for you, or are you still here with me? Because I work a lot with people that are grieving, and my way of supporting grieving is to say, grieve, my God, grieve. Don't try to stop grieving. Don't be strong. Grieve some more. Go grieve some more. Just allow the human pain. Don't hide it. Just let it keep going through it. And then at some point, you will quiet down naturally. It might take a couple of years. Who knows? At some point, you will quiet down. You will be quiet enough to realize that when you and another person enter into the space of love together for even a moment, that relationship has transcended relationship. You have entered into a unitive moment together, and that transcends death. And at that moment when you quiet down enough and you're sitting with your beloved, you suddenly realize that where did they go? As Ramana Maharshi said, where could I go? I'm still here. Just the form that left. You were missing the form. You weren't missing the essence because the essence is here. And when you recognize that, you feel as a human being enriched by everybody you have loved instead of deprived by the loss of their form. You realize that they're living through you and that everybody you've ever loved is part of the fabric of your being now in the way in which you go forward. And that's where grief gets transformed into a living love space, a spiritual transcendence of the pain. There was a nurse in a seminar that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and I were doing together. She was in her, I think, late 20s, and she had three children, and she had advanced cancer. And she had been through many, many operations. And it was a very poignant story with three young children. And she said to the audience, what would you feel if you came to visit me in the hospital? And different people raised their hands, and Elizabeth wrote on the board, and some of them said anger, and some of them said anger at God, some of them said pain, some of them said sadness at your plight, some of them said confusion, a whole list of things. And she then said, you see the predicament? All of you were so busy being with 28-year-old nurse with three children with cancer, nobody was with me. You see the issue, working with an AIDS patient or cancer patient or anything, the symbolic power of dying is so powerful that it's extremely hard to get through it to be with the person behind it. Like I have a friend, Kelly, who was a quadriplegic. He was hit on the side of the head when he was about nine years old and it was misdiagnosed. So you can hold his hand over an alphabet board and he can spell out words and that's the way he communicates. And he's fully awake and fully brilliant and he's 33 years old. Kelly is a delight, absolutely a delight. I had Kelly introduce me once when I was speaking before a group of doctors and holistic health healers. And Kelly was wheeled onto the stage, and of course, they were all aghast, you know, like, Kelly spells out R.D., Ram Dass, R.D. says, we are not our bodies, amen. But when I met Kelly, the immensity of his predicament so caught my consciousness that it took me almost six months of visiting with him before I could get behind the symbolic power of his identity, physical identity, to meet him, to say, are you in there? 
And now Kelly and I have been together for eight years, and you know, I mean, he's just another being, just like me. He's just got his karmic trip, and I got mine. I've just been through a very profound experience with Kelly. About two months ago, Kelly said to me, I've decided I've had enough, and I'd like to commit suicide. I said, well, you have every right to do that. He said, what do you think about it? I said, well, a human birth is an opportunity to do incredible spiritual work. And you've been doing incredible work, and there's a lot more you could do because you're still a hung-up, greedy little bastard. Kelly and I have a good relationship, as you can see. I said, but I don't know. The game is you take what you can take, and when you've had enough, you stop. There's no blame, not from where I'm sitting. I said, and I'll miss you terribly. I wish you wouldn't because I really love having you around, but you have a right to do it. The problem is, how are you going to do it? So he can't move his hand, he can't take pills, he can't cut his throat. What's he going to do? So we talked about it, and I said, well, I think the only way you can do it is not eat. So that day, he decided to stop eating. And he called his parents and all gathered, and the doctor and everybody. And I had gone and left for somewhere else. And he kept saying, Ram Dass has given me the courage. <laughs> I thought, oh, God. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I've decided to stop living. And so he fasted for 49 days. And I spoke to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, now, this young man could do a great deal with his life. And, you know, he had to protect his insurance. And I said, well, doctor, tell me, if you were in Kelly's predicament for 20 years, he said, I don't know. I said, well, that's the predicament I don't either. And when we don't know, we've got to give Kelly the support to do what he wants to do, because how are we to tell him what to do? So then, uh, around the 48th day, I came to see Kelly. He had lost 30 pounds. He was too weak almost to push the button. I mean, it took a long time to get the thing out. And he said, what do you think happens at the moment of death? So I told him what I thought would happen. He said, it's still all right with you if I die? I said, it's up to you. I'll miss you, and I think you can do more work, but it's okay with me. And that evening, he ate. But in those 48 days, he took me through so much. He took his parents through so much. He took everybody. Now, most of the people around him are really pissed off at him. How could you do this to us? And he said to me, are you angry with me? I said, angry? What a gift you gave me. You took me so close to the issue. You kept me awake with it all the way through. When you get to the place where your awareness is really clear, let me just tell you a story. In an older time, an army is going through villages and it's killing many people. It's a Buddhist country and it's disemboweling the monks and it's getting rid of Buddhism. And there was one particularly harsh captain and he had a bad reputation of being very cruel. And he came into this town and he said to his adjutant, what's happening in the town? And the adjutant said, all the people are bowing down to you, they're all afraid of you. And in the monastery, all the monks have fled to the mountains except for one monk. And the captain was furious that there was a monk who was still there. And he got up and he walked to the monastery and he pushed open the gates. And there in the middle of the courtyard was the monk just standing there. And the captain walked up to him and he said, don't you know who I am? I could take my sword and run it through your belly without blinking an eye. And don't you know who I am, said the monk. I could have your sword run through my belly without blinking an eye. Apocryphally, the captain bowed and left. And when you start to get into the spiritual literature, you start to see a lightness about death. A Zen master is dying, and Zen masters are supposed to leave a verse, and he hadn't written his verse, and his students were very concerned he died before he wrote his verse. 
So they kept saying, what about your verse? What about your verse? So he picked up his brush and he calligraphied, birth is thus, death is thus, verse or no verse, what's the fuss? And he died. <laughs> I want to read you just two things. And I went way out on a limb here and I had to do this and I'll explain why. This is one of the hardest stories you'll have to hear. An 11-year-old girl and her girlfriend went to the Jewish Community Center in the Northwest to play tennis, and they were both raped and murdered. And I was called that night by somebody who said, the parents are people who have read your books and listened to your tapes, and perhaps there's something you could say to them at this moment. And I realized I couldn't do it tomorrow. It had to be done right now. And so I sat down, and the enormity of that pain was so great it catapulted me out of the ego part of me that felt insecure in writing. And so I wrote this letter, which I'd like to share with you. Dear Steve and Anita, Rachel, the daughter, Rachel finished her work on Earth and left the stage in a manner that leaves those of us left behind with a cry of agony in our hearts as the fragile thread of our faith is dealt with so violently. Is anyone strong enough to stay conscious through such teachings as you are receiving? Very few. And even they would have only the briefest whisper of equanimity and peace amidst the screaming trumpets of their rage, grief, horror, and desolation. I can't assuage your pain with any words, nor should I, for your pain is part of Rachel's legacy to you. Not that she or I would inflict such pain by choice, but there it is. And it must burn its purifying way to completion. For something in you dies when you bear the unbearable. And it is only in that dark night of the soul that you are prepared to see as God sees and to love as God loves. Now is the time to let your grief find expression. No false strength. Now is the time to sit quietly and speak to Rachel and thank her for being with you these few years and encourage her to go on with her work, knowing that you will grow in compassion and wisdom from this experience. In my heart, I know that you and she will meet again and again and recognize the many ways in which you have known each other. And when you meet, you will, in a flash, know what now it is not given to you to know, why this had to be the way it was. Our rational minds can never understand what has happened. But our hearts, if we can keep them open to God, will find their own intuitive way. Rachel came through you to do her work on earth, which included her manner of death. Now her soul is free, and the love that you can share with her is invulnerable to the winds of changing time. In love, Ramdas. Let me just share with you one more story. When I came back from India, in 1968, I was living in New Hampshire on my father's farm. 
And a young fellow came to see me. He was about 18 or 19. He was living in the Lower East Side of New York. He was from Russian parents, quite wealthy. But he was living as a kind of a hippie in New York with his girlfriend. And he came to see me and he said, I'd like to study yoga with you. Hatha yoga and so on. I was teaching all those things at the time. And we sat together and he was a very unusual fellow. And at one point we were looking in one another's eyes and this blue light flashed between our third eyes. And it was so powerful, we both fell over backwards at the same moment. And I had no idea what that was. So he began to study yoga, and he would come to see me. His parents had a place nearby in an island, and he would go there, and he came to see me. And he started to improve. By the end of the summer, I said, look, you now need a real teacher. I mean, I'm great, but I'm kind of a schlock, you know, teacher, and you need a real one. And so I'd suggest you see so-and-so or so-and-so. He said, well, I think I have enough of the basics. I'm going to go into a cave on my parents' place down in Arizona, and I'm just going to do yoga all winter. If I can just fly to wherever you are once a month and see you, fine. So every month he would fly to see me, and he was starting to look like a yogi. He was fasting, and he was getting that kind of look about him. And then he didn't come in February, and he didn't come in March, and I didn't think much about it. In April, I got a letter from his mother saying, my son has entered Mahasamadhi, which in India means when you die and you enter the enlightened state. That's very strange for a Russian woman to say to me. And I realized she was saying her son had died. She said, I'm coming to see you because I have to show you his diary. So she came to see me, and she was somewhat of a hysterical woman, and she showed me this diary, and it said, scribbled in big scrawl on the pages, was, Mother, I have finished my work. I am with Christ and with Maharaji, which is my guru who he met through me. Tell Ram Das it's all right. And I will be watching over you. You need have no fear. Via con Dios, go with God. Love. Signed it. She says, see, he finished his work. To be honest with you, what happened to me when I looked at that book was I saw this big scrawling writing. And I thought, where have I seen that before? And then I remembered that in all the times I've taken LSD, there are moments when you are way, way, way out there. And you suddenly see the grand design of the entire universe. And you want to remember it. So I would stagger across the room to get a pen and something to write on. And I'd write this laboriously, this wise thing, which the next day would turn out to be like the word is. <laughs> which undoubtedly was the secret of the universe, except I no longer understood it. So, <laughs> so it looked to me like it was acid writing. And I thought, uh-oh, he took acid, and he probably... Because they found him in his cave with blood on the walls from his nose. He probably took acid and did pranayama or something and burst his heart and died. She said, he did finish his work and he's enlightened, isn't he? I said, well, I don't know. But I said, I know somebody who would know, my guru in India, because he knows everything. I'll ask him. I'm going in the fall. I'll ask him, send me a picture of your son. So she sent me his high school graduation picture, which I put in my valise for going to India. Six months later, I'm in India. I've forgotten about the picture. It's in my stuff. One day, we're sitting with my guru, and he's looking through everybody's bags and taking out their pictures and looking at them and kidding about them. And I remember this picture. So I go back to my room, and I get the picture, and I bring it out. I don't say a word about it. I haven't talked to anybody about it. And I place it in front of him, and he's talking, and finally he looks down. He looks at this high school graduation picture, and he says to me, he's dead. I said, yep. He said, he died from your medicine. I mean the LSD. 
I've got to tell you, I forgot one part of the story. Two weeks after the mother came, his brother came, and he said, I've got to tell you this. He said, I went to visit my brother out in the cave, and I brought some acid, and we all took acid together, and we went swimming. And while we were swimming, he came over to hug me, and I went into a homophobic reaction, and I pushed him away. And he got upset, and he told us to leave, and that was the last time I saw him alive. So now you see what I had in my mind. Ah, he took acid, paranoid, went back, tried to do yoga, killed himself. That's not enlightenment. Now Maharaji, my guru, is sitting there. He says, he died from your medicine. I said, see, I knew it. And Maharaji looked at me. He said, nay. He heard the tone of my voice. And then Maharaji said, he is one with Christ and with me. He finished his work. He is watching over his mother. She need not fear. And he quoted word from word from this boy's diary. Exactly, word for word. And he said he told her to go with God. He said he finished his work. And when he said that to me, all of my models about how you're supposed to die were completely undercut. And I realized that when somebody was ready, the hook came out from the side of the stage and they left. <laughs> and our models of you're supposed to go out dancing were just our models. That it was a much deeper story than that. And my guru said, nobody dies a moment before their time, and nobody remains a moment after it. And in Tibet, where they have cultivated so much awareness free of identity with that which changes, there are lamas who are so conscious that they, there was one that sent out cards to everybody saying, I will be dying next Thursday at two, won't you come by for tea? People came, they had tea, he turned around three times, sat down, went into samadhi, and left his body. Now, I just want to play with the edge of the mystery with you. The mystery of Anita's death, the mystery of Mary's death, the mystery of the mystery, the mystery, the mystery. There's one more little funny story. Mother and dad exchanged one red rose on every anniversary as a token of their love. My mother died in 1966. Big funeral at the temple. Everybody's there to share the grief. The casket is covered with a blanket of roses, red roses. As the casket is wheeled down the aisle and goes by the first pew in which my father, who's a very practical lawyer, my brother, who's a very practical lawyer, his wife, who's a very practical wife, I have another brother who's crazy and thinks he's the Messiah, and his wife, who's very practical, and me, who's completely Meshuggah. <laughs> so as the casket goes by, one rose falls off the blanket at my father's feet. We all see the rose. As we are leaving, my father reaches down and picks up the rose, and we go out and get into the Cadillac limousine for the ride to the airport. My brother, the Messiah, says... <laughs> I guess mother sent you a message, because nobody else could say that. They were all too practical. But everybody agreed, because they were all in that state, you know. I mean, they'd never agree on other conditions, but they all agreed. The next thought in the car was, how will we save the rose, okay? <laughs> this was in 66, so preserving methods were so involved, suddenly telephone calls, and this is and that's, and flying it in ice to somewhere. <laughs> And it was put in a glass container, you know, with water sealed in, and it was on the mantelpiece. But the method hadn't worked quite well, and slowly the water turned this kind of brackish, brownish quality. And after a few years, my father was ready to remarry. 
and carrying this brackish thing. So it ended up in the back of the garage where I found it and put it on my holy table as a reminder of the transitory nature of phenomena. <laughs> in Tibet, when they give me the instructions at the end, they say, as the earth element leaves, your body will feel heavy. As the water element leaves, you will feel dryness. As the fire element leaves, you may feel cold. As the air element leaves, your out-breath will be longer than your in-breath. The signs are now here. Don't get lost in the detail. Let your awareness go free. Imagine, oh, I'm thirsty. She's thirsty. Give her water. I'm cold. Instead of, ah, the earth element. Ah, the water element. Just recognize what an adventure this transformation is. The appreciation of death and the spiritual journey after death is the prerequisite for living life joyfully now. Death does not have to be treated as an enemy for you to delight in life. Keeping death present in your consciousness as one of the greatest mysteries and as the moment of incredible transformation imbues this moment with added richness and energy that otherwise is used up in denial. I encourage you to make peace with death, to see it as the culminating adventure of this adventure called life. It is not an error, it is not a failure, it is taking off a tight shoe, which you have worn well. But those that find the way in the morning can gladly die in the evening, it is said in the mystical literature. So I encourage you to explore and find in your being that part of you that is on those other channels so that when on channels one and two the world turns series comes to its final chapters you won't be caught in feeling loss but rather the adventure because from where i'm sitting life on this plane of reality because i live in the world of reincarnation of karma life on this plane is like being in the fourth grade you took birth here because you had certain work to do that involved the suffering you do, the kinds of situations you found yourself in. This is your curriculum. It's not an error. Where you are now with all your neuroses and your problems, you're sitting in just the right place. Imagine that. Imagine that. Nobody made an error. And all that stuff in you of saying, if only, if only I could be. No, this is it, including the if only. It's perfect. And then at the time you graduate, and somebody says, oh, but he died so young. So if you graduate from fourth grade early, big deal, wonderful. Don't get so caught in worshiping life that you lose the balance, that realizing that the spirit it says, live life fully and richly as a partner with God, and at the same moment, don't be afraid of the next thing. Go towards it with openness and with love and not with forbidding. The way that is understood in the morning 
one can gladly die in the evening. That's Ram Das, and that's it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>